Thank you, everyone who's already been serving this morning, getting us um, prepared to worship and prepared to fellowship. And, and I mentioned the men's retreat just in passing, but that was a, such a, an encouraging time uh, for me. And, and um, so thanks for, to all the men who helped set that up and Daniel for hosting it. And it was just a joy to see uh, the men and, and, and boys and teenagers all uh, interacting together and, and just the body of Christ and just seeing um, the influence uh, between generations and the discipleship that can take place. And so that was a real, a real uh, treat. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. If you're using the black church Bibles, that can be found on page 827. And again, we're um, at this section of the Gospel of Matthew. We're in what's called Passion Week. We're, the, we're probably here today um, at Tuesday, so we're just about three days before Jesus will be arrested and crucified. Um, and so if you remember what's taken place already in this week, Jesus has come into Jerusalem publicly and symbolically declaring that he is the promised Messiah. And by cleansing the temple and then giving those series of parables that we considered the last couple of weeks, Jesus has declared judgment on Israel, on the nation of Israel and especially the religious leaders. And what he's been teaching them, declaring, is that the blessings of them being God's covenant people are soon to be taken away from Israel and going to be given to another because God is doing something brand new. God is creating a new covenant people made up of believing Jews and Gentiles, both. And, and uh, it'll be b- believing people because it's going to be those who've um, trusted in and embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so even though they're going to, many are going to reject Jesus as the Christ... Through that rejection and and even then that exaltation of his resurrection, he will become the chief cornerstone on which God is building this new holy temple, this new covenant people. And so Jesus has has been um, proclaiming that, you know, by, by cleansing out the temple through his teaching, through the parables, and the religious leaders are... Um, they're, they're just fit to be tied at this point. I mean, they hate Jesus... They, they don't believe he's the promised Messiah. They know that he's been telling these parables against him, against them, excuse me. So they know Jesus is, is, is uh, rebuking them and, and, and speaking judgment on them. And so they, they want to get rid of Jesus. They want to kill Jesus. They've already been plotting how to do this. But the dilemma that they're in is Jesus is popular right now. Right? You know, there's been this, this group of pilgrims come from Galilee who are all excited about him because they, they believe he's the Messiah. The crowds in Jerusalem are kind of, you know, just wanting to know what all the, the, the buzz is about. And so they can't just publicly, you know, haul him off right now. And so they've been trying different ways. If you remember, they've tried to discredit him already uh, by, by just kind of publicly... Um, confronting him, saying, hey, who, who do you think you are? Who gave you this authority, right? But Jesus turned the tables on them, make, making them look silly by saying, well, hey, if you can answer this question for me, I'll tell you. And, of course, they couldn't answer the question. And so now they're trying, as we come to our passage today, they're, they're trying a different uh, tactic. They're going to try to trap Jesus by asking him some doctrinal questions. And um, they're hoping that they can again, trap him by, by however he answers. They're hoping that they can trap him and discredit him and even actually turn people against him. And so here, beginning in verse 15 of chapter 22, you have like three just rapid-fire um, questions or traps <laughs> being set for Jesus. The first will come from the Pharisees and the Herodians. The second will come from the Sadducees. And the third, it says, uh, a lawyer basically describes that so we're, we're dealing with all the parties of the Jewish ruling council here. But we're going to see Jesus, of course, thwart their plans. And I was tempted to just cover all three today because, you know, it's kind of one nice unit. But um, you'll be glad I didn't because I'm only covering two and it still is a little long, but we'll try to move quickly through it. 
so I, do, I want us to cover the first two of these accounts today. So let's uh, stand, please, and we'll read verses 15 through 33. So just follow along in your copy of the Scripture as I read. Matthew 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, being Jesus, in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Rhodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The same day Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven." And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Father, we thank you for your word, and we, I pray that you'll help us be astonished as well at the, the power of Christ, the wisdom of Christ. And may you open our eyes to see... Um, just the power of the gospel that is at work in those who believe and, and is still at work today as it goes out. So, Spirit, please be our teacher, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, the title of the message this morning is Confident in the Power of God. Confident in the Power of God. This week as I studied this passage, and you know, a theme that, that just stuck out to me was, was the power of God. For one, you know, um, Jesus is showing his authority in the fact that he, he's not going to be trapped by their, their trick questions, right? He knows exactly what they're doing, and he's going to um, answer with wisdom and power. And so that, you know, there's that theme. But then in verse 29, uh, Jesus tells the Sadducees, You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. So even in Jesus' answers, not only is he demonstrating the power of God... But in the very um, theology and, and doctrine of the answers, they're examples of the power of God. So I, I guess that's why that theme was just rising to the surface for me. And so that's what I want us to focus on uh, today. But I'm really, my plan is I'm going to go through the passage. And then at the end, I just want us to note um, the examples of the power of God. And then talk about how that should impact our life. Okay, so... Uh, as I go along, maybe you could be noticing, uh, where do I see the power of God being displayed in this, in, in this interaction here? Okay? So let's, let's dive in here in verse 15. This sets the scene for us. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, right? How to trap him. And so they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. And before we get to what they actually say, this is kind of interesting for, uh, an, in, an interesting team that's been formed here because the Pharisees and the Rhodians didn't like each other. They were kind of like the Republicans and the Democrats, honestly, because the Pharisees were the ones who were kind of uber-conservative, right? And, and uh, you know, they hated Rome, and they were very, you know, legalistic in their, in their doctrine, right? Because they had added all the oral tradition in addition to what, you know, we call the Old Testament, Right? Whereas the Herodians, they were more liberal, and uh, politically and doctrinally. They didn't mind Rome because the Herodians were in charge of the temple, right? And so they kind of had, you know, um, had this kind of 
buddy-buddy system with the Romans as long as the Herodians were in power and making a lot of money with the way the temple was operating, then they were, they were fine. And they didn't believe in the oral tradition. Matter of fact, they didn't... Um, yeah, they, they, were, they, they weren't nearly as conservative as the, as the Pharisees. So, it, it, again, they, they rarely saw eye to eye, but here in Jesus, they have this common enemy, and now they're working together because they have this mutual hatred for Jesus. We know why the Pharisees hate Jesus. We've seen that happen, play out many times, right? They hate him because he's uh, rebuking them. He's disrupting, he's calling them out. He's disrupting their religious agenda, and the Herodians are afraid that he's going to threaten their political arrangement, right? He's already gone into the temple and, and declared that God's going to destroy it and, and, and kicked out the money changers. And so they're worried about their system being, being uh, demolished here. And so now they're working together to try to trap Jesus in his words. And notice what they say. And they start off with flattery, right? I mean, this just oozes with, with um, insincerity. Teacher, we know you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So it's like they're pretending to kind of admire Jesus, right? And, and they're, they're heaping up all this flattery, this insincere talk. But what's interesting is, even though they're not sincere, what they're saying about Jesus is actually true. Right? He, he doesn't care about people's opinion. He's not sweet. He doesn't give in to the fear of man. He, just, he does speak the, the word of God and show the way of God truthfully. So what they're saying is actually true, but they're doing it trying to butter him up so they can lay the trap for him. Right? Um, and they ask Jesus about a real hot-button issue here then. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And this, this was a volatile issue of the day because what they're referring to it was called the poll tax and that was something that every Jew had to pay to to Caesar right because the Romans uh, controlled Israel right Israel was was under Roman rule and so every Jew had to pay this poll tax as a tribute to Caesar and the Jews hated paying it and you say well yeah of course everyone hates paying taxes right well that's true but I mean they they really hated it because it was just like this this constant reminder of we are under Roman rule, right? Uh, here, this land was promised to us. We're, we're, we believe it's, you know, uh, God has promised it to us and, and we should be under his rule, but now we're, we're subject to the Romans. And so they hated paying it. And not only because of that, but also um, when you pay tribute to Caesar like this, it's actually considered like a form of worship, and you may have noticed already the, the, the coin they used to pay this tax was uh, called a denarius. And let me describe that to you. It was a Roman silver coin worth about a day's wages. And on one side of this coin, there was the head of Caesar and the, the abbreviated uh, inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And then on the other side of the inscription, it said, chief priest showing Caesar's mother sitting on a throne. So the coin itself was, was blasphemous. So that was another reason the Jews didn't like paying the, this tax because it was offensive to them. And so this, this was a very um, controversial, uh, highly charged uh, issue. Many of the Jews were ready to Stop paying the tax. It, you know, at different times, little revolts had, had risen up. No, we're not paying this anymore, right? And trying, you know, those had always been squashed. But there, many of the Jews currently were, were ready to stop paying it. They wanted to start a rebellion against Rome, right? We've seen that. The zealots, you know, they're ready. That's why some of them are excited about Jesus being the Messiah, thinking he's going to lead that, that uh, uh, revolution, that rebellion against Rome. And so the Jewish religious leaders think that, aha, we can get Jesus in trouble here, right? Because by posing this question to him, if Jesus says, hey, no, guys, you better pay the tax, then they think that, well, many of the Jews are going to be like, oh, you know, you're, you're just going along with the Romans, and how can you put up with that blasphemy? And, you know, they think that'll get the Jews mad at him if he says pay the tax. But they, 
they think, oh, but if he goes the other way, and if Jesus says, no, you're right, you know, we shouldn't pay that tax, well, now Rome's going to get involved and say, hey, hey, you know, what are you doing trying to stir up an insurrection? And that would be fine with them. That would be fine with the religious leaders too, right? Because then he'd get in trouble with the Romans and be killed. So they think they got him either way. He goes here. But look at what Jesus does. Verse 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice, (laughs) said, right? I mean, he knows they're using flattery. He knows they're trying to trap him. He's not fooled by that at all. Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Right? You guys are just liars. Show me the coin for the tax, verse 19. And they brought him a denarius. (laughs) Think about that, right? Here's Jesus holding up this coin where where it says Caesar claiming to be the son of the divine. But here's Jesus, the true son of God, holding this coin. Here's Jesus, the true high priest, holding this coin up. And Jesus said to them, verse 20, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And now here's his answer. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now that verb render carries the idea of paying back a debt. And, and ancient coins were actually understood to be the property of the person whose picture and inscription was on them. So he's saying, hey guys, this is Caesar's coin, right? It's, it's, it's got Caesar's likeness on it. You live under his government, so pay it back to him. Give it back to him. Pay the tax. And so that's interesting, by the way, by, by Jesus doing that. And then, of course, then the apostles um, further teach on this later in the New Testament. But Jesus is acknowledging the legitimacy of human government, even, even an evil human government, right? Jesus is saying, hey, the government is providing a service, so pay back what you rightfully owe them. Turn with me uh, to Romans chapter 13. There's several passages. I, I think they're in the, the bulletin there um, at the bottom of your notes section. But you got one in 1 Peter um, that, that says much the same. 1 Timothy chapter 2 talks about how to relate to the government. But Romans 13 reminds us this truth that, that the human government we live in or live under has been established by God. And that we are to obey it wherever possible. I won't take the time to read the whole passage, but we'll just look at how the chapter begins. Romans chapter 13, page 948. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So the Bible teaches that Christians are to submit to their government, again, even ones that are evil. Because you think about the, you know, who the apostles, what the government they were writing about, right? An evil government. But we still are to submit to them because they have been put in place by God. Now, of course, the important caveat is if the government tells you to do something that, script, that is against Scripture, well, then you must obey God rather than men, right? But when, when that's not the case, we're to submit and obey the government. And that's really the, the emphasis in the Bible. Look down at verses 6 and 7 of this passage. For because of this, you also pay taxes, Romans thirteen six. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Wow, we could talk a long time about that, couldn't we? You know, and then again, like I said, um, Paul will say in 1 Timothy, we need to be praying for our leaders, right? Not... Not always complaining about them, not making fun of them, even though we disagree with them. And it definitely speaks to the issue that was being raised with Jesus, right? Pay taxes to whom taxes is owed. So that's what Jesus is saying. Again, Paul is building on what Jesus has already taught. 
So here we see Jesus, is, he's never been about trying to lead this an, an anarchy against Rome, right? That's not what he's come to do. And so he legitimizes the government. He legitimizes even the tax and says, that's what they've done. They've been put there by God, so pay your tax. But that wasn't his whole answer right back in Matthew 22. He said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but then what, notice the rest of his answer, and to God the things that are God's. Render to God the things that are God's. Pay back, what belongs, pay back to God what belongs to God. The coin had Caesar's image, and so yeah, you should pay that back to Caesar. That's what he's told you to do. But people should give back to God that which bears his image. Well, what bears his image? <laughs> Themselves, right? Every person is made in the image of God. That's what the Bible clearly teaches. All people are created in the image of God. Therefore, we all belong to God. He's the one who gives us life and breath. In him we live and, and, and move and have our being, right? And so we owe our total allegiance to God. Every person is accountable to God. We owe him our worship. We owe him our, our love. We owe him our service. We owe him our, our obedience. Which again includes obeying the governments that he's put in place over us. And so, you know, what Jesus is saying, well, yeah, if Caesar can claim an obligation of you because of the image on a coin, how much more can God claim your total allegiance since you are made in his image? And so Jesus is being very clear here. He's distinguishing Caesar is not God, right? We, he's like, you know, he may claim to be that, but we know he's not. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar. Render unto God the things that are God. So yes, pay your tax, but don't forget that you belong to God. Give God what he's owed. Give him your praise. Give him your love. Give him your trust and obedience and your service. Give him your entire life because that's what he deserves. And of course, you know, to the, these religious leaders, that includes give to God the um, allegiance to the, the king that he has put in place. <laughs> Right? Jesus is God's promised king. He is his anointed one. And so you need to embrace him as your king. And that's the very thing they weren't doing. So look at their response to what he said in verse 22. <laughs> when they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. So their trap has completely failed. Right? They were not able to catch Jesus and what he said. They can't use his words to to get him in trouble with either group. <laughs> he's not in trouble with the Romans because Jesus said they should pay the tax and yet he's not really lost any clout with the crowd because he clearly denied that Caesar was God and he acknowledged that God is the one who legitimately owns all of us. So Jesus is answered with such wisdom and authority that even his enemies are marveling at him. Isn't that interesting? They marveled. And they, they just kind of, they're, they're defeated, right? They leave them. Well, we tried. Well, here comes round two, verse 23. The same day Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question. Now, the Sadducees were, again, this other group. Um, they were an influential group in Jude, in, within Judaism. They were part of the Sanhedrin, part of that ruling council. And they were in charge of the, of the temple, right? Um, so, again, their, their influence was centered there in Jerusalem. They're the wealthy, powerful movers and shakers in Jerusalem. But they're, doctrinally, they're very different from the Pharisees. Uh, the Sadducees, and this is what Matthew points out to us, for one, and this is probably the most important thing right now, they deny that there's a resurrection, and those of you who know in the Acts, right, when Paul is, is on trial and, and he, he, he purposely kind of gets a, 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 a fight going between the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees because he says, I'm on trial here because of my hope in the resurrection. And the Pharisees are like, yeah, that's right. And the Sadducees are like, no, that's not right. And that was Paul kind of being clever there. 
But the Sadducees, another important thing about them that's going to play into this passage is they only accepted the books of Moses as Scripture. They only accepted the books of Moses as Scripture. So they're, they're coming to him. They're trying to discredit him. They're trying to make him look foolish. I wonder if the Sadducees had done this before, uh, raising this pretend scenario. I wonder if they'd done that with the Pharisees, trying to make the Pharisees look foolish. I'm not sure. But what they do is they're, they're constructing this scenario based on the Old Testament practice of, of Leverite marriage. And what that was, that was a provision that God had explained in Deuteronomy 25, which said that if a man died before producing an heir, the man's brother or at least his nearest relative was to marry the widow and produce a son who could carry on the man's name and have legal right to the possession of the man's land. I know that sounds weird to us. We see a couple of examples of it in the Old Testament. But that was God's way of, of caring for, graciously caring for the widow. Because as that child grew and as the widow aged, the child could take his mother into his family and onto the family's land. And so it was, it was actually a very kind and gracious thing to do. So the Sadducees, they want to discredit Jesus. I think I had mistakenly said earlier the Herodians were in charge of the temple. It was the Sadducees who were in charge of the temple. The Herodians had their own way of, of getting influence from Rome. So all the, they all want to get rid of Jesus. And the Sadducees are trying to do that by raising this issue of the resurrection. They're, they don't believe in the resurrection. They know Jesus believes in the resurrection. And so they raise this scenario. Well, you know, what if this... I mean, it's an unbelievable scenario, right? That one woman would end up marrying seven brothers, right? It's kind of like taking, you know, the position to the obnoxious end. But they're trying to make Jesus look silly in front of the, in front of the crowds, trying to take away his influence. And so that's the, the issue they raise there in verse 24, right? Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Verse 25, now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no offspring left to his, his wife. Sorry, having no offspring left his wife to his brother. Verse 26, so too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. So it's like she was married to all seven brothers. And so then they're saying, verse 28, in the resurrection, therefore of the seven, whose wife is she going to be? Because she was a wife to all seven brothers. So how's that going to work, Jesus, since you believe in the resurrection? Pretty absurd scenario in one sense. But how's Jesus going to answer this? Verse 29, you are wrong, he says, flat out. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Verse 30, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So what he's saying is, Sadducees, you're making two mistakes right off the top here. You don't know the scriptures well enough to know that scripture teaches the reality of the resurrection. You know, I could show you many places, but I'm going to even show you from the books that you accept as scripture. And your second error is you don't know the power of God to create, that, that God is going to create a, a much more wonderful life than you're thinking just in terms of this life here, but the life to come is going to be completely different, completely, completely other. Okay, so those, that's where he's going He's going to explain that people will not marry in the age to come because they're not going to die anymore. He says they're like angels in the fact that they're immortal. And Jesus might have thrown this into the discussion again as a little jab to the Sadducees because they didn't believe in angels either. But the point Jesus is making is there's no more death in the age to come. And so there'll be no more need of marriage. There'll be no more need of procreation. There'll be no more need of raising of children because there's going to be no more death. And he's saying, you guys are making a false assumption about the resurrection. You're assuming that resurrection life is going to be just like this present life, only longer. And so that, again, they're thinking, well, it's going to be just like this, this life where people are getting married. And so whose who's, uh, wife is she going to be to the, all those brothers? But Jesus says, no, the age to come is going to be very different from this present age. The new heavens and the new earth is not going to be just a slightly upgraded version, right? Like the newest ver version of an operating system, right? You know, 2.0. No, it's going to be something completely better. It's going to be brand new. There is going to be some continuities with this age, but, you know, think about what Scripture says. The, the book of Revelation says the old order of things has passed away. There's going to be no more death or dying or pain at all. So it's something brand new. 
And so he's, he's making that point because he's saying in this new age to come, marriage is no longer going to be necessary. Again, because there's going to be no more death, we don't need to keep, you know, creating, <laughs> conceiving more children. But also the ultimate purpose of marriage will have been, will have been achieved in the union of Christ and his bride. Because yes, marriage is a, is a wonderful gift that God has given to mankind for, for human flourishing. But we, Scripture also teaches that marriage ultimately points to the realities of, of Christ redeeming and sanctifying his people, his bride. And that purpose will be fulfilled when Christ returns to gather his bride, to raise them in glorified bodies, to live with them in perfect sinless intimacy for eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. See, that's what marriage has been preparing us for and pointing us for, pointing us toward, I should say. And so that's going to be achieved. That's going to be fulfilled in the age to come. We're, in other words, we're not going to need marriage anymore because we'll be with Christ. And we'll enjoy perfect love and fellowship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and with each other. As together we all enjoy the worship and, and, and presence of Christ. Worshiping Christ and being in His presence. And so that's something interesting, isn't it? That, that helps us understand God's plan here. That marriage is a wonderful gift for us. And, the, and the, it's to be a loving, intimate relationship unlike any other here on earth, right? But that love and intimacy that you enjoy now with your spouse, that's ultimately just a foretaste of the love and the unity that you're going to have with all the saints as we together worship and fellowship with our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Jesus says it very clearly, there's not going to be marriage in heaven. And I know in a way that can be a little maybe shocking, to you know, if you've never studied that before, or it might even be a little disappointing to, to some, especially whose spouses have already died and are with the Lord, because I know you're looking forward to being with them again. And you will be with them again, right? I believe you're gonna rec- we're going to recognize each other. I believe you'll, you'll recognize your spouse, and, and you know, we don't know how all the details of that are going to be, but, but you're just not going to be married, because again, you're going to enjoy this intimacy and love with all the saints, with all the saints. So you, what I do know for sure is you're, you're not going to be disappointed, right? None of us are going to be disappointed in heaven. <laughs> Even though there's some things, some details we don't know about, right? So, what, again, what Jesus is showing the Sadducees, do you have such a limited view of the power of God to assume that the age to come is just a, kind of a, you know, a, a slightly upgraded version of this age? No, no, no. It's going to be completely different. Completely better. But he doesn't stop there. He, he goes ahead and gives another um, uh, point, another doctrinal truth here. Look at verse 31. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Because look, he... <laughs> He, he takes them to the book of Exodus, right? Because again, they only accepted the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses there. And so he's like, let me show you from your own scriptures that you accept what God says. When God is talking to Moses, he identifies himself as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, how does that prove the resurrection? Well, again, when God is saying that to Moses, right, he's referencing covenant promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob centuries before. Promises of land, promises of a seed, culminating in, in, in the promise to be their God. Then hundreds of years later now, long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have all died, God tells Moses at the burning bush there in Exodus 3.6, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And so Jesus' point to the Sadducees is if that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead, never to rise again, just annihilated, that's what the Sadducees believed, then, there would, if, then that would just be the end of the story. 
And God would not still be telling Moses that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. These men are alive to God, he's saying. Because they will be raised. And if there was no resurrection, then God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would not be kept. Right? Because they didn't inherit all those promises. Hebrews 11.8 says that. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. Verse 9 of Hebrews 11. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. They were still looking forward to the fulfillment of some of those promises, many of those promises. And God's going to keep those promises because they will be raised one day. They will take their place with the people of God. They will enjoy the share of the inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. All those promises have been purchased and secured for them by Christ. And so Jesus' point here is that the patriarchs are not dead and neither are God's promises to them dead. For the promises to the patriarchs to come to pass and for God to still be their God, then that means there must be a future resurrection. These men are alive to God and God will raise them one day at the return of Christ. That's what the point he's making. So, how, how do they respond to that? <laughs> Verse 33. And when the crowd heard it, so here Matthew hones in on the crowd, they were astonished at his teaching. So I would say this, this uh, attempt has failed as well, right? Rather than Jesus being discredited in front of the crowds, he's actually just being proved, his stock is going up, right? I mean, they're, these guys in Jerusalem are seeing what the guys in Galilee have, have been seeing for some time now. No one ever taught like this. I mean, Jesus teaches with such authority, there is something special about him, right? So, let me kind of wrap this up around the theme that I want us to consider today. Again, we'll, we'll, this will continue next week, these attempted traps. But have you been noticing examples of the power of God in this? Not only in how Jesus powerfully responds, but, but well, here's, let me share with you the ones I noticed. And if you, if you're taking notes, this is what I have there. Recognize the power of God to, number one, establish every governing authority. Right? That's what he was talking about in that interaction with Caesar. Establish every governing authority. How that shows the power of God, right? I mean, you know, from a human standpoint, we're looking at authorities, and especially back then as kings, they had ultimate authority over their subjects, right? And yet, Jesus has said, but God is over them. God's the one who's put them in place. God raises up kings and God takes down kings. Human kingdoms come and go, but God's kingdom is eternal. And so that displays the power of God. So let us be reminded of that, right? Not only as we interact with our government, but you know, when you interact with a, a teacher, a coach, a boss, a judge, anyone who's in authority over you, just know that God has put them in authority over you. That God is your ultimate authority. Right? And you are, again, to be, to be subject to them as long as they're not asking you to sin. But what I want you to do is just remember the power of God. Because I know some of those authority figures are sinful and they can, they can be harsh. They can, that you can have a harsh boss, right? Or whatever. And that can be discouraging, but be, be confident that God is in control. Proverbs 25.1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the Lord's hands that he turns whichever way he chooses. God is in control over that person. And we know God loves us and whatever's happening to us is, is for our good and, and his glory. But we can pray, right? We can pray, God help me. Help me to, or, you know, please remove this boss, but help me to submit to him or her right now. So there's one example of the power of God. Another one I see here is, again, it, we touched on it very quickly, but just God as creator, right? Recognize God's power to create all things, 
Render unto God the things that are God's. <laughs> well, what is that? Everything, right? Especially you. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, Psalm 24. You know, and, and what, a, what a blessed doctrine to, to go back to and meditate on. God, you spoke this world into existence. You, all, you hold all things together by your powerful word. My life is in your hands. My times are in your hands. You have my days numbered. God, you are powerful. May that remind us and, and again stir us to praise and trust. Another example of God's power, obviously, was to raise the dead, right? The resurrection. Here Jesus is, is saying, you guys don't know the power of God. You don't know the power of God to raise the dead and to, and to create a world unlike the one we're in now. Recognize the power of God. Kind of ironic, wasn't it, when he was saying that, that here Jesus is standing before them. They don't believe in the resurrection. And in, in just a few short days, he himself was going to be killed and raised, right? He's the first fruits. He is the resurrection and the life. And so again, I know we, we rejoice in the resurrection all the time, and rightfully so, but as we do, let us think about the power of God. Death and sin are our greatest enemies, but Jesus has defeated them, right? He has defeated sin and death and Satan. And that's my last point I wanted to give you today. Recognize the power of God to, number four, defeat Satan's schemes, defeat Satan's schemes. And that's what kind of comes out in this, in this passage, doesn't it? Here all these different um, opponents of Jesus are trying their best to trap him. They're trying their best to, to discredit him or whatever or get him to stop. And he's just coming out victorious every single time. Jesus is in complete control. He defeats all of their schemes. And again, ultimately, he defeated Satan's scheme, didn't he? He took what Satan was, was doing to try to thwart him, and he turned that into a victory, right? Yes, I'm going to be rejected at the hands of evil men, and yes, they're wrong, and they're going to be held accountable, but yet, through that, the ultimate victory was won because Jesus defeated sin and death, and he's that cornerstone, like I mentioned earlier. Likewise, the loved ones, we face, we still face an enemy, right, who seeks to, to do us woe, He's shooting his fiery darts of, of discouragement, of doubt, of anxiety, of unbelief at times. Right? He, we're, we're in a spiritual battle. That's, that's true. But what does Ephesians 6 say? We can put on the full armor of God. We can stand firm in the strength of the Lord, knowing that Jesus has won. And so be, be encouraged that Jesus, God through Jesus, has defeated Satan and he will one day destroy him forever throwing him into the lake of fire and until then we can stand firm in the victory of christ because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world and so maybe you saw other examples those were those were ones that stood out to me but my takeaway today loved ones is be confident in the power of god be confident in the power of god nothing is impossible with god that's what the Bible says, right? That's what the Bible proves. Nothing is impossible with God. He can speak the world into existence. He can raise the dead. He can defeat Satan. Nothing is impossible with God. No one can thwart God's plans. And so let me ask you this. All right, I'm saying that's the theme. Be confident in God's power. How would an unshakable confidence in the power of God affect your life right now? Think about what you're facing. If, if you could have an unshakable confidence in the power of God, would your life be any different right now? How would your life be better? I'll close by sharing just three ways that, as I meditate on that, three, three ways it would affect my life for the good, <laughs> right? If I have that unshakable confidence in the power of God, each of you are going to have your own ways as well. Number one, I will, I will worry less. That's kind of tricky to say. 
I will worry less. An unshakable confidence in the power of God means I will worry less. I can trust God because he is good, because he's wise, and he's all-powerful. God is in control. And so no matter what trials I'm going through, whether I'm suffering from my own sin or the sin of others, I know that God is sovereign. He can lead me to repentance. He can restore my joy. He can give me strength to persevere. He can defeat my enemies. And so I won't be afraid at what people might do to me or things I might face in the future because the Lord is my shepherd. And he will lovingly and powerfully guide me through every challenge and provide for my every need. God is good and God is powerful. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Meaning I don't, I don't lack anything. He gives me all that I need. So that was number one. I will, I will worry less. Second way, an unshakable confidence in the power of God will, would affect my life right now. I will attempt greater things for God. I will attempt greater things for God. In other words, I will take risks for God's kingdom. Being confident in God's power means I don't need to fear man. It means I I believe that God is at work. I believe that God is building his kingdom. So I'm going to take, I'm going to joyfully seek to serve him. I'm going to take risks even. I'll invite my coworker to read the Bible with me. I'll have my neighbor over for dinner and invite them to church. I will pray for and take opportunities to witness about Jesus. Knowing that God is powerfully at work gives me confidence to step outside of my comfort zone. Right? Let us be confident in the power of God. And the third and final way I'll share with you today An unshakable confidence in the power of God means I will pray more and pray with expectancy. I will pray more and I'll pray with expectancy, expecting God to do great things for his glory. No matter, again, thinking of trials, thinking of things that we're facing, whether it's from people or circumstances, God is more powerful God is more powerful than any hard heart that I'm facing in a spouse or a kid or, again, a, a co-worker. God's more powerful than that. God is more powerful than any habitual sin I might be struggling with. In Christ, I can have victory. God is more powerful than the fiery darts, again, that Satan throws, right? I mentioned those earlier. The, the darts of doubt or of fear or discouragement that Satan hurls at us. God is more powerful and so I can pray, right? When, when, those, when, when uh, those burdens come, when those anxieties come, what does scriptures tell us to do? Cast our burdens on the Lord. Pray. Pray with confidence. Being confident in God's goodness. Being confident in God's love. Being confident in God to keep his promises. And being confident that God is powerfully at work. Confident in God's power means I expect God to do great things for his glory. So again, I'm praying, oh Father, move in this person's life now for your glory. Save them for your glory. Father, please help me to put this sin to death that I may better bring glory to you. Father, be my rock, be my refuge. Trouble is pressing down hard on me. I'm weak, I'm discouraged. I need your strength, Father. Please help me. And so loved ones, let us be confident in God's power. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your power. We praise you that you are a mighty God, a a God who is mighty to save, Lord. And I also, even now, pray for any here in this room who don't know you, Lord. And we know that by nature we're all dead in our sins and we're all enslaved to sin and and headed for um, eternal punishment. But Father, I pray you will powerfully work in their hearts right now, that you will show them that Jesus came and lived and died in the place of sinners and rose again, and that he is, he's exalted now above all power and all authorities, that he is Lord and Savior, 
And so may you draw many to yourself in a, in a mighty way. And for those who are your people already, Father, may you give them confidence. May you encourage our hearts with your, who you are. Forgive us, Father, when we lose sight of your, of your power, of your love. When, we, when the man or, or the trials just look, begin to look very big and, and, and then we make you, start to make you look very small in our, in our unbelief. But God, you are bigger. And so may you fill us all with a confidence of your power that we can serve you with joy and be used by you to further your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to, um, as we normally do on the first Sunday of every month, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And so if I could have the men come who are going to uh, serve us. I just want to read, of course we already read 1 Corinthians, but I just want to read another, one more verse. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Because as we take the Lord's Supper together, this is um, uh, something that Jesus has given us as a public uh, and a visible, symbolic um, reminder of what he's done for us by by coming and living and dying in our place, right? Though he was sinless, he took our sins upon himself, dying under the curse, paying the punishment for our sins. And he rose again showing that his payment was accepted by God, showing that he was who he said he was, that he had defeated sin and death. And so we take the bread and the cup as, as, as uh, symbols, the bread representing his body, the cup representing his blood that was shed for us. And so Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So as we take the bread and the cup together, may it remind us, of course, of the love of Christ, of the grace of God, how merciful he's been to us, and may it remind us of his power, that he has powerfully saved us, that he's powerfully made us into new creations, and that he's powerfully at work, and that what we're experiencing now is just just the 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 uh, first fruits, just the down payment of our future salvation to come. All right, so men, if you uh, can pass this out for us, and as they do, we can just be uh, meditating on those truths.